here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Before we dive in today, Carly has something to remind you of. All right, everybody, Cece and I are looking forward to our joint webinar. This is the one that Cece and I do together, the two of us. It's going to be December 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern, all online on Zoom. It is called Writing the Perfect First Five Pages. We love doing this one because it is really just a summary of the best advice we've ever given on the podcast. So, I mean, what more do you want from us? So we're collecting it all in one place in the evening on Monday the 12th, and we look forward to seeing you there. You don't want to miss this presented by the Dream Team. Okay, so let's dive right in. Carly, will you kick us off with the first query letter? 
Dear Ms. Waters and Ms. Lira, a longtime listener of your podcast, I have spent many long commutes with the podcast, and I'm thankful for the insight, laughs, and wit you bring to the episodes each week. As I begin the journey querying literary agents, I'm excited to share with you my 99,000-word historical novel with a touch of fantasy, Redacted. It's June 6, 1944, and Anthony Higgins, an allied paratrooper, has hours to live. He and his men have been mistakenly dropped in enemy-riddled France on D-Day, where they will come face-to-face with the Germans who will execute them and meticulously cover up the war crime. 75 years later, a documentary producer, Evelyn Godwin, is in Normandy, France, working on a World War II special on the anniversary of D-Day, when she discovers Anthony Higgins' dog tag wrapped around a mysterious letter. Her job on a chopping block, the former reporter believes she's found the perfect hook for viewers in Higgins, whose story has never been told. If she can pull off the documentary, it will save her job and allow her to connect with her dying grandfather, a World War II veteran who stormed Omaha Beach, but has never spoken of that day. But a mysterious German bunker along the French coastline changes everything. Evelyn and her colleague Jack Blair find themselves in June 1944, two days before the Allied invasion. As D-Day's initial hours inch closer, they set out to find and save the paratroopers before the Germans find them first. Told from Evelyn's perspective, Redacted is based on the true events of MFA Massacre, a little-known story of eight American men who only lived through the opening hours of France's liberation. A journey through time story that would appeal to fans of Jennifer Robson and Kate Quim, the adventure is Outlander meets Saving Private Ryan. I'm an anchor reporter who prefers her coffee strong, her rabbit holes deep. My news stories on veterans and international reporting have received Associated Press Awards and in 2019, my documentary on a World War II prisoner of war was honored by the World War II Foundation for Best Documentary in Normandy, France. Thank you for your time and consideration. Per your submission guidelines, I have included the first five pages so you can get a feel for my voice. Sincerely, Jennifer Holton. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Wow, that's quite an impressive bio. Tell us what you think about the rest of it. Okay, to start off with, just so everybody knows, we're at 385 words, so um, definitely in a great range, um, which I think everybody could tell from listening. Okay, so in terms of the book, so I think this, like pitching it as historical novel with a touch of fantasy, that's really interesting, right? I think we're all thinking, you know, what about it's going to be historical? What about it's going to be fantasy? So I think it's a nice little way to to kind of hook us from the very beginning. I noticed there wasn't comp, so I did scroll down to the bottom to make sure there were even from the beginning, which again is just why I like them at the top because I'm going to find them no matter what. So so I did kind of go searching for them. I wanted to talk a little bit about World War II as a category. There is definitely some industry fatigue on World War II. You know, editors who do a lot of historical fiction will tell me I'm looking for everything but World War II. You know, there's just, there is a lot, there's a lot out there in terms of World War II. I, I think it's still selling, like the market is still interested in it, but I do think we're, we're definitely getting some fatigue. So if editors are buying a little bit less World War II, that probably means agents are also seeking out a little bit less World War II. All of that said, I think this it's the fantasy angle that sets you apart here. So I do think you have a strong enough hook to make it through the noise here. Okay, so I think in terms of the actual content here, so I feel conflicted because... I know for the sake of the query letter, you're trying to kind of pick out all these moments and the stakes and, and how this all comes together. But some of this feels a bit coincidental. You know, it's like, oh, they stumble upon this and there's a dog tag wrapped around a mysterious letter. And it's just hard for me to believe that nothing would have been found, that there are still things to be found that haven't been kind of revealed or discovered. Um 
but war is really, it's not tidy, right? And so I, I just feel like we are oversimplifying it a little bit. Perhaps it is just the query that, you know, is oversimplified because that's what queries kind of have to do. They have to simplify all this material. So I just want you to know that it's reading a little bit coincidental and I would prefer it not to be, you know? So that's kind of my my feedback on that. I think one of the things that I, I, I think is missing here is, so we have this whole time slip thing, right? And you know, and she's going to be learning about kind of her, her grandfather, everything like that. I think what, what I was missing for me here is the butterfly effect. Like if they're going to go back in time and change something, is this going to change the course of history? And what are the repercussions of that change? So, you know, if she changes the course of her grandfather's life, then would she even be alive today? And I, I, I just feel like we're not grappling with those with those really high level thoughts. And perhaps that's not what the book is about. And as I said, I never like making a book something that it's not, but I can't help but wonder if we are going to be changing the course of history with, with these characters going back in time, how do we not reflect on that in the query letter, I guess, because it just seems like such a big part of the stakes for this is knowing that you're going back in time and changing something. Wonderful, Carly. Yeah, a lot to think about there. Okay, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? So we start with a dream sequence. We have where we don't know at the time that it's a dream sequence, but basically it is our character on a boat and we know that they're kind of being dropped into the war on the front lines, dead bodies all around them, that sort of thing. And then this character sees her grandfather in her dream on the beaches on the front lines, and then she wakes up from the dream. She is being called by her boss's assistant to call her into a meeting, and they have, you know, a rapport about this character is in Paris to do some work for this documentary, and the boss is in LA, so we're kind of trying to figure out little time zone stuff when when they're going to be able to have their conversation. She explains a bit about where she works. She works at a TV network, kind of a rival to the History Network, but mostly about war, you know, war content. We also learn a bit more about her kind of work history. We learn about kind of portions about her life and anxiety. We learned about her relationship with her grandfather. So a lot of it is spent kind of going back in time and explaining who she is. That's it. Great, Carly. Thank you. Okay, I'm already a bit nervous about the dream sequence. Based on our advice that we generally give is to not begin with dream sequences. Let's see if this author managed to prove us wrong. What do you say? Yeah, you know what? I... As I said, we didn't start off knowing it was a dream sequence. It just is like chapter one, the body keeled over in my lap and all I could see was bullet holes, right? So we're starting a very interesting place. And then I felt like I got sucker punched by the second page because then I'm like, now we're going back in time to modern day Paris, much less riveting <laughs> than, you know, being on the front lines in the war. So... Yeah, I mean, I one of the things I did like about the dream sequence was that she does see her her grandfather in the dream. I liked that. And so I thought we were already into the time slip. You know, I already thought we were into the time travel. And then, yeah, we got sucker punched a little bit on the second page because no matter what, there's hard for anything to be as dramatic as that opening moment of the war. So, and I think the other thing that that I tripped up over, which I kind of explained in, in my summary, is that we spend a lot of time with these first five pages going into the past, you know, explaining how she got into the business, why she works at that company, her relationship with her grandfather, as I said, her anxiety, how, you know, when she was 27, she quit her job in local news and moved to Washington, D.C. All of that is just total backstory, you know, and again, does not compete with the energy of a war scene. So, 
Yeah, I think I think there's some work to do here to figure out exactly where this book begins. And if it is where, you know, we have to begin here because the actual modern, co- like the, the present day conflict is she needs to have a call with her boss and she thinks she's getting fired. You know, if that's where we need to start, then that's where we need to start. But yeah, I definitely don't think we're starting in the right place between any of these kind of options. And it's not to say this book isn't interesting. It's just we have to have a certain level of reader buy-in. And when we flip around so much between, you know, the past and the present and the past and the past, you know, in various capacities, like the reader just doesn't know where to get comfortable and how to kind of sit with this and, and you know, get to know our characters. So I, I think that's the part that that I struggled with. And it's all very interesting. And I think the time slip hook is is going to work. But I really think we need to start a different place. Do you think this is one of those instances where a prologue would work if you go into the time slip and kind of flash forward in the story, although it's in fact flashing back, uh, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. To start with something super compelling like that. But then I guess if you go from that to the modern day conflict, which is just a meeting with the boss, then that's still a letdown. Yeah, that's, that's why I don't have the perfect answer for this one. I think it could work to have a prologue and and start with the time slip. And then it's like we're building the excitement and the tension to like catch up to where we are in that moment. But no matter what, it's like we're letting the air to the tires a little bit. So I think we have to do away with the dream. And I think we have to start in the present moment and like build our momentum up to the time slip. Okay, Carly. Great. Thanks so much for that. All right, Cece, will you read us your query? Dear Cecilia Lira. I'm seeking representation for Redacted, an adult horror novel complete at 90,000 words, which is Ashley Audrain's The Push meets Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House. After a dinner party spent pretending to love her life, Chloe Miller, a struggling new mother, comes back home to another night of trying to make her baby Ava sleep in her crib. In the middle of the night, Chloe enters the nursery yet again and sees a dark shape holding Ava. Then she passes out. Chloe wakes up the next morning in her bed with no memory of how she got there. Her baby is waiting peacefully in her crib, and now she's way easier to deal with. After days of feeling like something is wrong with Ava, Chloe gets woken up by cries that are not coming from her baby, and which she can't find the source of. Chloe is then convinced that the baby in Ava's crib isn't the one she gave birth to anymore. A truth that is reinforced when Chloe can't stand to hold Ava anymore, when Ava's skin gets unnaturally cold, when Chloe hears voices telling her to hurt her baby. To understand what is happening to Ava, Chloe hires a medium and meets with a killer who's like her baby's doppelganger. When she finally confronts the dark man who has been lurking around her house, Chloe uncovers a disturbing truth about her world. She must then fight the entities that threaten her baby's life in order to get her back all while appearing to be a sane, capable mother to everyone around her. I'm a French-Canadian who writes in English my non-native language. I live near Quebec City with my partner, our two young kids, and the cutest Boston Terrier. I'm a supporting member of the Horror Writers Association. One of my short stories was published as an honorable mention in an anthology. Redacted would be my debut novel. Thank you for your time and consideration. Lefty Abe. P.S. Thank you so much for creating your amazing courses on writing interiority and emotions. I hope I've managed to apply everything you taught in the following pages. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what's your take on that? I want to begin by saying that any query letter that references the push is an automatic, I scroll down so eagerly to read everything from me because 
I just love the push. I'm completely obsessed with that novel. I am counting the days until Ashley's new novel, The Whispers. I cannot wait to read it. So, okay, this seems fun. And I know, I don't know what it says about me that I'm saying this seems fun when it's clearly a horror novel, but it does. The trope of a mom is convinced that her baby was switched, that it's not actually the same baby that she gave birth to, is has been done before. Obviously, that's why it's a trope, but it works really well. It's immediately compelling. It's something that immediately makes us feel for this person. There's immediately a question embedded at the heart of the story. Is she right? Is she wrong? And if she's right, where is her baby? So you're leveraging a really, really interesting trope here. And I applaud you for that. In terms of the plot paragraph, there are details that I don't have to know. So for example, I don't have to know about the dinner party. I don't have to know, you know, that you she was walking into the nursery after so many times. You can compress that. It's not that there's anything wrong with me knowing that. It's more that it's taking up space. So for example, a compression could look like this. Ever since she mysteriously passed out in her baby's nursery, Chloe is convinced that the infant in the crib is not her daughter. Her husband and friends tell her she's imagining things and insist that she should be grateful that a once difficult baby is now gentle and quiet. But Chloe knows what she saw the night her real baby was taken. There was a man lurking in the shadows of the nursery. That is half of the words that you're currently using. And it's not, I'm not saying use this text because it might not reflect what you want, but it's really just about compressing. And why do we have to compress? It's not because there are many words here. I will get to the word count in a second. It's actually because the moment in time where this novel becomes fresh and original and not just, you know, I'm relying on this trope, it is currently underdeveloped. So for example, Chloe uncovers a disturbing truth about our world. I don't know what that means. I really need you to flesh this out because again, a story about a woman who's convinced the baby is not hers. I've seen that before. I'm eager to read a fresh one. So tell me what's fresh about this one. And it has to be in a little bit more detail with a little bit more development. I'm also confused about the following line. To understand what is happening to Ava, Chloe hires a medium and meets with a killer who is like her baby's doppelganger. So is this a killer that she meets through the medium, meaning in a seance, the spirit appears? Or like, are these separate things? I, I would tweak that line because I, I wasn't super clear on it. But yeah, that, that, these are my notes. I would compress the setup and expand on the thing that makes this so different and original. And thank you for sharing. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages? So the chapter is told through the point of view of the shadow. The shadow is an entity, a creature. We're not entirely sure what the shadow is. And the shadow is watching Chloe arrive at home with her new baby. The shadow makes Chloe feel like an inadequate mother by feeding intrusive thoughts into her mind, thoughts about leaving, thoughts about abandoning her baby. And then the shadow tries to do the same with Chloe's husband and with the baby, but the shadow is not able to enter their minds. And the shadow keeps trying to do that, knowing that her attempts will make the pursuer show up. Now, all we know about the pursuer is that this entity has some type of authority over the shadow. And when the pursuer does show up, the shadow shares an idea she had. The reader does not know what the idea is. And then the shadow shares, and the pursuer seems to buy into the idea. And then towards the end of the chapter, the shift is that now the shadow is feeding different kinds of thoughts into Chloe's mind because now she doesn't want Chloe to leave. Now she needs Chloe to stay. It's like, dun-dun, why? We don't know. 
You beat me to the dun-dun-dun. Awesome, Cece. Okay, so are these pages doing the heavy lifting they need to be doing? They are. They, they're they definitely strong pages. I had like minor notes here and there that I highlighted and our Kofi subscribers will be able to see. But I want to I wanna say that there's very little here that, you know, assuming that this is where you want to start, assuming that this is the right POV, you'll understand what I mean in a second. There's very little here to change, actually, because it's really, really strong. The note I have, it's a little bit different. We're starting in the villain's point of view because the shadow is the villain, right? So question, is this intentional? Typically, it makes it harder to connect, especially since we're dealing with the villain who does not seem to have a lot of vulnerability. This creature is all evil. I usually recommend start with the hero, or if you're going to start with the villain, it has to be a three-dimensional villain, not even two. It has to be a villain who, who has vulnerability, who has some type of conflict between love and trust, some type of, you know, an even worse person in their life that they have to answer to. That just helps. Vulnerability is what makes us connect with character. And so that to me was a bit of a challenge, but obviously it depends on the author's vision and I'm just here to share thoughts. Second note, I would really like to see more of Chloe without the intrusive thoughts because it's tough to understand where Chloe's predisposition ends and where the shadow's manipulation begins. So I do understand based on the pages that, you know, Chloe was already struggling with the idea of motherhood. Her husband's the one who wanted to have a kid. She didn't. She has a complicated relationship with her own mother. That was done really well, really effectively through interiority. The challenge is that I don't know to what degree. And I kind of wanted to feel for her with a bit more specificity, like how, how much is the shadow manipulating her? And then the third note I have is the interesting part of this, the shadow being here, is happening against a kind of a mundane backdrop, which is the dialogue between Chloe and her husband, Joseph. They're just chatting about normal things. I would rather have the dialogue between Chloe and Joseph be something more compelling. So for example, just a random example here. And yes, my mother-in-law does listen to the podcast. She and I get along really well. But imagine that Joseph was saying, I invited my mom to come. And Chloe was like, why did you do this? Like, And they could have an argument, you know, because they had maybe agreed that his mom would not come and he kept insisting that you know you'll need the help if you have the shadow observing a couple in a fight that makes it even more compelling as opposed to a shadow observing a couple just having a normal dialogue where nothing really happens it's important to pack in as much compelling elements as you can because it does help and i don't want to say you know i already said this when i summarized but excellent job finishing the chapter because the shift is just Really, really well done. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, let's go to you. Will you read us your second query letter? Dear Carly, I'm seeking representation for my novel, Such a Lovely House, a high-concept psychological thriller with a millennial gothic twist, completed 80,000 words. Such a Lovely House is what would happen if one of Jesse Klein's frank essays on early motherhood from I'll Show Myself Out took place in the creepy dream home turned nightmare featured in The Watcher. I'm querying you because of your interest in emotional, fast-paced fiction. I was also drawn to the fact that you honestly explore motherhood in your own essays and social media space while representing authors who also write about the full spectrum of the experience. Hannah Atkinson and her husband John have recently traded downtown condo living for a stunning century-old home in John's small hometown. With a good job she can do remotely and a large home of her own, Hannah feels she's won the millennial jackpot. 
But John's demanding career requires him to travel a lot, and she is forced to spend long stretches of time alone in the cavernous house with their newborn daughter. When neighbors start to share strange stories and odd events start to mount, Hannah begins to believe something is not quite right in their new Instagrammable home. At first, John doesn't believe there's anything wrong with the house, and they both suspect her panic is the result of sleep deprivation and hormonal changes brought on by new motherhood. But no matter how hard Hannah tries to push it aside, the horrifying events escalate, making matters worse. John's ex is circling their marriage like a scavenger, and their financial situation doesn't allow them to sell. Desperate to save both her marriage and her sanity, Hannah needs to stop whatever has been terrorizing her in their home or face the possibility that she has completely lost her grip on reality. Such a lovely house is set in the fictional town of Franklin. It was loosely inspired by my own move out of Toronto to a century-old home in a small town and a longtime listener and fan of the podcast. You critiqued a previous query of mine on a different project in December 2021, and it was so helpful. When I'm not working or busy writing, you can find me with my family playing on or near the water. Thank you for your consideration. Name redacted. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, how many words there and what was your take on that? All right. So this one was 386. So another another good sized query for us. I think we're we have some interesting themes between the connections of all the different query letters today. I think this is a nice one to follow CC's as well. So this one, I, I think the comps are interesting, but I kind of wonder about. Okay, so neither of the comps are in the same category as this book, right? Neither of these comps are psychological thriller books. Jesse Klein's essays, and then the watcher. And so there just has to be comps, <laughs> you know, book comps here. So I'm, I'm not opposed to, you know, other media or other genres necessarily as comps, but when it comes down to it, we're going to need a book comp in this space. And so I know there are thriller motherhood comps, like, you know, we, we've talked about the push before, you know, on this last one, like, there, I know that there are motherhood thrillers out there, psychological thrillers with motherhood hooks. So I think we just need to find one, you need to pick one, because I think that would just be more helpful. It's not that this doesn't work. It's just at the end of the day, when you sign with an agent, an agent's going to have to find these, these comp book comps anyway. And so we're going to need them at some point. So I, as in terms of the actual content, it's really creepy and I really like it. I think there's a lot that's really, really interesting here. I think a, a creepy house, you know, with gothic undertones is a great hook. And as I said, I think there's a lot that's really working here. But really, I think my, my hesitancy with this one is, is that we kind of, I feel like the, the pitch stops halfway through the book because we have, you know, all of a sudden things start to get creepy, which is kind of to me an inciting incident, right? So it's like everything's normal. And then we get like, okay, here's the inciting incident. That's when our, these strange stories and events start to mount. And then we also find out, you know, John doesn't think there's anything wrong. She has the baby at some point in here. There's the ex stuff and the marriage stuff. And to me, like that just gets us to halfway through the book. Like what is happening in the second half of this novel? Is it, you know, more psychological? Is it more horror? Is it like, I, I'm just trying to figure out exactly what is going to happen. Cause I think the stakes are there, you know, you're making it clear, like they can't move because of their financial situation, et cetera, et cetera. But I think I would just like to get us a little bit closer to the end. And we never need to spell out the end, especially in a thriller pitch. But I think I was left wanting a little bit more about what's actually going to happen in this book. So that's my main advice here. Thanks, Carly. And for the author, phone into our hotline and 
you know, ask our bookseller for some comp titles. Give them the genre, the tone, etc., and let's see what they can come up with for you. Okay, Carly, what was in those opening pages? All right, so we start with our character waking up to a very loud noise. She's not sure where she is. And then she realizes, oh, she's in the new house. So her husband also kind of wakes up. They're trying to figure out like, what is it? He thinks it's the neighbor kind of banging around on garbage day. She says like, I just, I can't sleep until I figure out what this is. And they're talking a bit about their neighbor. They think he's kind of creepy. She kind of thinks like he has a shed and it's in the backyard and the light's always on. And that's a bit odd to her. We find out that she's pregnant, so she can't sleep that well anyway, so she's kind of rolling around a lot. So she decides she's going to get up and grab the dog to kind of go with her and go outside and, and figure out what the noise is. Then we kind of slip into how they move to this house. They talk about being a city person versus being a country person, some kind of concessions she's made in their, in their relationship to, to move to this house. And... I think that's pretty much it. By the time they kind of, you know, get outside, she's kind of like looking around, doesn't see too much and, and makes her way back up. She kind of explains the house to us. It's a Georgian style, six bedroom, four bathroom house. And uh, and we kind of get the sense that, you know, she's lonely and, and she's in she's in a big house and in a new place. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, so something else we've said on the podcast is don't have characters waking up, but this is something different. You know, this isn't just waking up on a random Tuesday morning. This seems to be more interesting. So what was your take on that? Yeah, yeah. No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it is a waking up thing, but there's a reason for it. And also... If you're going to have a pregnant character, they're going to be waking up in the night. So it's like, that's just a reality. It's not so much of a trope as a common sense kind of thing. So, you know, I I get it. I think it's just also interesting to me because the query that I that I had read before this, that character also got woken up by a phone call. So I like that this one wasn't woken up in the night by a phone call. I like that it was woken up in the night by a loud noise. And as I said, she's pregnant. So it, like it all makes sense that she'd be kind of sleeping lightly. So so that works. That works for me. So now I, I think for this one, I just kind of had a lot of small notes here. So one of my small notes was she names the company that she buys the tables from. She says the bedside tables aren't coming until Wednesday, according to Wayfair's most recent email. I I hesitate to name companies unless you really are trying to tell us something about her, such as she likes to do discount online shopping. You know what I mean? Like why would she shop at Wayfair versus somewhere else? I mean, if you're going to say somebody's going to shop at, you know, Pottery Barn or West Elm or, you know what I mean? Like there, there, there are ways that brands can tell us something about the character. So if you really feel like you have to keep Wayfair because it tells something about your character, that's fine. I'm always just a little hesitant because what happens if Wayfair closes, right? And then your book comes out and then you have a mention of a store that doesn't exist anymore. So that's my note on that. My other note on the first page is the dialogue here. So these two characters are waking up in the middle of the night to a bang and they are speaking in complete fully formed sentences, bouncing off each other with some like rapport. Like, ah, I struggled a little bit. I think it's too formal and too much of a complete thought for the middle of the night. Like at the beginning, it says, you know, hear what? John's voice is sluggish. And then he just all of a sudden like breaks into full sentences. Like it was probably just Mr. Taylor taking out his trash cans or something. It's garbage day tomorrow, like complete sentence. You know what I mean? So that to me felt a little bit off. I think for, for me to really feel like they were being woken up, I think we just have to relax that, 
relax that wording a little bit. I like the way that you revealed the pregnancy. It says, John slowly rolls back to face me. That makes sense. I'll go and check on it if you're really worried. No, it's fine. I'm feeling restless anyway. Maybe stretching my legs will help. I lean over and kiss his forehead. You sure? He rubs at his eyes. I can't be the asshole who sends his pregnant wife to check on a scary noise. So really just, you know, really, really well done to kind of reveal that that information. And I also really liked the whole like explaining that they were city people and, and now they're country people and and what they what she feels like she's lost because I think it hits at this this universality, which is, yeah, there's a lot of people who, you know, get pregnant and move to the suburbs or, you know, want to buy a house. But I love that she's questioning this, right? So it's not just like, hey, we're going down swimming with all the other fish. It's like, hey, you know, is this the right choice for me? You know, has the right decision been made? It also makes me think about Karma Brown's Recipe for a Perfect Wife. That book is phenomenal. It wouldn't really be a comp because it's historical, but there is very much a like, a, a, you know, a wife character who feels like she's like been brought into the suburbs and brought into a house where she's not happy. So I would I would recommend reading that one at least if but I'm not I don't think it's a comp. I think there's a lot of personality in this voice and in this character. You know, she talks about I pull back the thick dusty drapes left behind by the previous owner. She left a lot behind. The realtor made it sound like a generous gift, describing the home as partially furnished. After the third run to the local dump, we saw it for what it really was, unpaid labor. She had to downsize because she was moving into something the realtor referred to as an adult lifestyle community, which sounded to me like some sort of sex resort. And in truth, it was just a jazzy description for a rather depressing assisted living facility on the outskirts of town. So I really feel like this is an interesting character, right? She has interesting ways of thinking, She's been put in this small town box and, you know, maybe she doesn't want to be a small town girl. So I think there's there's a lot there. And there's also a kind of a section where she talks about, you know, that she really does love the house. And she says, there's a woman I follow on Instagram who just moved to a farmhouse in rural New Hampshire, leaving behind a flashy PR job in New York City. She recently refinished her staircase doing a spectacular ship themed gallery wall with pieces she scavenged from local antique markets and secondhand stores. Some nights I scroll through her feed when I'm feeling alone in my clawfoot bathtub, wondering if she ever gets bored in New Hampshire. I thought, you know, just a really nice, you know, that that fish out of water thing that I was talking about. So really, I feel I feel like I, I think the pages are are quite strong, just kind of need to tweak some of that dialogue. Wonderful, Carly. Thanks. And just, you know, on the Wayfair thing, you know, you said if you're wanting to show she's doing sort of discount online shopping, that doesn't really work there because I've seen chairs on Wayfair that go for $20,000. So, you know, Wayfair is all over the place. It can be discount stuff and it can be expensive stuff. So that doesn't really nail it down. But I do think authors should be paid for product placement, man. I've been watching TV shows lately where someone grabs a bag of chips or whatever from the cupboard and holds it so perfectly towards the camera. And I'm like, authors should be paid for product placement (laughs) as, as well. But until then, yeah. Okay, thanks so much for that Carly. Right now Cece we're going to the last query letter. Will you read that for us please? Let's do it. Dear Cece click 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 clack. The typewriter is music to my ears. Listening to the shit no one tells you about writing has been an invaluable masterclass in writing. Thank you for the time you spend giving back. Your social media indicates you're seeking novels with female relationships and mine is full of them. Based on this and your interest in flawed protagonists and books that explore power, identity, and dysfunction, I present Don't Pray For Me, a multi-POV upmarket women's fiction story, 84,000 words, about a queer woman forced to reconcile her sexuality with her conservative evangelical upbringing after falling for her alluring atheist client. 
fans of the love story in Untamed by Glennon Doyle and the religious family in God Spare the Girls by Kelsey McKinney will enjoy this book composed in the style of Written in the Stars by Alexandria Belfler. Realtor Vanessa's evangelical family thinks she dates men, and Vanessa plans to keep it that way. But when she meets atheist theology professor Lucy at an open house, she can't help but be drawn to the unapologetic way Lucy lives her life. There is an undeniable attraction between them, despite their ideological differences. As Vanessa and Lucy's professional relationship develops into something more, they each begin to reevaluate their beliefs and priorities. That is, until Vanessa learns Lucy is the hated ideological rival of her ultra conservative sister, Jennifer. When Jennifer issues a devastating ultimatum, Vanessa must unravel her complicated notions of faith, family, and love in order to find herself. My wife and I are an interfaith queer couple who have experienced the damaging effects of religious prejudice from our families. My master's dissertation, published by Georgetown University, informed the biblical exegesis within the novel, and my own lived experience informed the rest. I'm a member of Women's Fiction Writers Association, and when not writing or reading, I'm CEO of a real estate admin and marketing company, playing squash, cooking, traveling, and being ruled by two toddler tyrants, our son and a German shepherd. Per the submission guidelines, the first five pages are included below. I would be honored to send you the full manuscript upon request. Content warning, Christian-based homophobia, assault and murder of two minor characters both occur within a flashback. Teddy redacted. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, how many words was that and what's your take on it? 370 words. I'm rounding this down. An excellent size for a query letter. I want to say, first and foremost, this is a great title. I'm usually not the one harping about titles. Like, I always care about the plot paragraph, plot paragraph, plot paragraph. But when I read this title, I was like, oh my gosh, I would buy this book based on the title alone. Don't pray for me. I love it. Great title. Excellent, excellent title. So the only note I have because this is perfect, is I wanted to understand in what way Lucy was the rival of Jennifer. Because I know Jennifer is the protagonist's sister. I know Lucy is the love interest. I know they're rivals, but rivals like like social rivals or business rivals. I just, I, I wanted that detail. If it's possible to weave that in, great. If it's not possible, that's fine, because I would just keep reading to find out actually perfect query letter. I loved it. I thought it was so great. Made me want to read more. It's excellent. Amazing, Cece. I hope the author's doing a happy dance wherever they're listening to this episode. Right. What was in those opening pages? So Vanessa and her sister are walking on a hot day. Through dialogue, we learn that Jennifer talked Vanessa into walking because exercise will increase her chances of getting pregnant. Jennifer's the sister, Vanessa's the protagonist. So then Jennifer tells Vanessa she's proud of Vanessa because she's been working really hard, but through interiority, we know that Vanessa has been losing contracts, and if that continues, she'll have trouble making rent in a few months. Jennifer asks Vanessa about a date she went on, and you know when she finds out it didn't go well, she says Vanessa's standards are too high. Vanessa tries to wiggle out of the conversation, 
They're about to go into a cafe when Jennifer's phone rings and Jennifer says it's Fox News wanting a soundbite on the don't say gay bill. And then Vanessa goes into the cafe alone to get them iced teas while Jennifer stays outside. And when Vanessa's inside the cafe, she makes eye contact with a beautiful woman. And she's about to go talk to her when she realizes that Jennifer's waiting and she has to bring her her iced teas. So she doesn't. And back at home, she thinks to herself that her relationship with her sister, you know, isn't what it used to be. And that's really sad. And she also thinks to herself, if only she could tell her sister that what she really wants is a wife. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, so what was your take on that? I have micro notes on this. I have no big picture notes. So bear with me. First note. I would tweak the opening line. The opening line right now reads, The midday August sun prickled Vanessa's skin, exposing her pores, but not her secrets. I am saying this with all the love in the world. It would make no sense for the sun to expose anyone's secrets. That's not how the sun works. So in terms of literality, it doesn't work. But one might argue, okay, but it works because as she's walking in the sun, she's feeling the pressure to reveal her secrets. Sure, except that pressure isn't happening. We have that one line, and then we don't think about her secrets until the very, very end. So either flesh it out, keep the line and flesh out the angle of the secrets, or tweak it. Because I could be wrong, but it just sounded like you wanted something impactful about secrets in the first line, so you, you kind of put that in, and it's not reading very organic. And first lines are really, really, really important. I know it sounds unfair, but it just they just are. Um, okay, next micro note. When she thinks to herself, I'm going to have trouble making rent if this continues, I wanted a sense of visceral emotion as to why she can't share this with her sister. Is it shame-based? Is it competition-based? Is it fear-based? Like, where is it coming from? Just a sense, just a hint, just a clue. There's one curiosity seed here, and I really liked it. Vanessa is asking Jennifer, um, actually, she says a comment like, oh, I'm, I'm glad Craig didn't mind. Craig's her husband, her sister's husband, her brother-in-law. And then Vanessa thinks to herself, instantly regretting the implication. So clearly there's something there, something in the brother-in-law relationship, this brother-in-law. I don't know. I'm guessing he might be like a controlling jerk or something. And if that's the case, I just wanted a little bit more, not in that spot, in a different spot. And we'll get to it when I share my next micro note. Next micro note, the dialogue is a little info dumpy. You have most of what the two sisters are saying, they already know. And usually a good trick to know if your dialogue is info dumpy is to highlight all the dialogue in your page and then ask yourself, is what the character, each character is saying, is something that the other character already knows? And if the answer is yes, typically it's info dumping. So I would tweak, I would just honestly use interiority to, to establish information. And if you don't want that, if you want to establish through dialogue, there has to be layers woven in to make it not info dumpy. And then when Vanessa is thinking to herself, okay, I got to go into that cafe alone because my sister just got a call from Fox News, you know, soundbite for the don't say gay bill. Like I wanted visceral emotion there too, because there's no way that didn't impact her. Like that is a I'm assuming anyway, that would be a really hurtful thing to, to hear. And your, her sister has no idea she's hurting her. So a little bit more in terms of, of visceral emotion. And to connect with my previous note about the brother-in-law, there's a line that reads, she had to stop letting Jennifer get to her. After 31 years of being Jennifer's younger sister, Vanessa should be a pro by now. That reads as generic. And I wanted more detail. I wanted, for example, maybe Vanessa is trying to recreate the closeness they once had as children back when they were both Girl Scouts and willing to keep each other's secrets. And this, of course, was before Vanessa's secret be became too big for her to share. 
She could, you could say something like that, right? I want to understand more about their family dynamics. And then you could actually seg into Craig. You could say something like, if only she hadn't married that guy. Maybe because maybe that was the dividing moment in their relationship, the moment in which their closeness ceased to exist. I just wanted more insight into their family dynamics through detail. Detail is really, really, really important because detail is what makes that relationship, Vanessa and Jennifer's, unlike any other sister relationship. And I want to say, as a final note, that the ending is once again great, just like the other query letter we just read. The line reads, if only she could tell Jennifer she wanted a wife. It's It makes us feel for her so much. It reveals something, yes, something we knew based on the query letter, but it doesn't matter because it's so powerful. It shows that the character already knows what she wants. It shows that the character is feeling conflicted about sharing this. And it's just really, really powerful and very emotional and very well done. So great job. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today's four query letters. For those of you who are monthly Kofi supporters, you will have access to all four of those query letters in terms of the written critique. For those of you who are once-off supporters, you will get to see two of them. Okay, so let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. 
today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information, and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matcha page. And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's episode is sponsored by mylifeinabook.com. This is probably the most thoughtful gift I've ever come across for parents or grandparents for the winter holidays as families get together to celebrate. It's a powerful way to connect emotionally with them, preserve their most precious memories, and show them that you really care. And best of all, it's an instantaneous gift. I've tried it with my own mother, Caroline, and she loved it. Every week, My Life in a Book lets you choose from a list of thought-provoking questions or even write your own that gets sent to your relative by email. Your relative writes their answer and can choose to add a meaningful picture. This happens every week and then at the end of one year, all their stories get combined into a beautiful keepsake book that can store your relative's memories forever and pass them on to future generations, which is printed and sent to you. You can request as many copies as you want and even get them in audio format as well. And you know how much we love audio content over here on the pod. With mylifeinabook.com, you can give those you love most, a personal gift that tells them they're meaningful to you and all future generations. To save $10 off your first purchase, use discount code ABOUTWRITING10. That's ABOUTWRITING10 to get $10 off mylifeinabook.com. Today's guest is an internationally acclaimed novelist and screenwriter who's the author of 12 novels, including The Return of Kid Cooper, winner of the 2019 Spur Award from the Western Writers of America, One-Eyed Jacks, shortlisted for the DeShiel Hammett Award, and All Hat, which has been adapted to a feature film. His writing draws on his wellspring of experiences working across Canada, the USA, and Africa at a variety of jobs, including railway signalman, carpenter, bartender, truck driver, ditch digger, school teacher, farmer, maintenance electrician, and roofer. He now lives in a 90-year-old farmhouse in southern Ontario. It's my pleasure to welcome Brad Smith. Brad, welcome to the show. Hi, Bianca. Thanks for having me. Okay, so for our listeners, just to give you an understanding, the book that we're going to be discussing is uh, Copperhead Road, and I'm just going to read you the flap copy so that you understand the context of the discussion. Summer 1936, Wilkes County, North Carolina, during the Great Depression. The Flagg family resides in the middle of the Appalachia, one of the hardest hit areas in the country. As the Depression drags on, the Flagg family watches the decimation of the molasses business. Jedediah, the family patriarch, and his sons Morgan and Ezra struggle to produce a few meager gallons a week. That is until their sister Ava arrives home and takes control of the family business and starts running moonshine. Ava bails out ex-con Bobby Barlow and tells him he is working for the Flagg family now. 
With threats mounting from rival clans and the local cops breathing down Bobby's neck, he and Ava devise a plan to play them all one against the other. They don't necessarily do it by legal means, but that doesn't bother them. To live outside the law, you must be honest. And that is a quote from Bob Dylan. Was that an inspiration for you for this book, Brad? Yeah, just maybe in a more general sense. That's always that's always been a line that I've loved from. I'm a, I'm a real Dylan file anyway. But to live outside the law, you must be honest. Has always been a line that I've really loved. It kind of smacks of Robin Hood or or some romantic character like this from the past. It definitely plays into this because um, sometimes the outlaws are more honest than the. Uh, or shall we say the establishment, the politicians and people like that? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And in terms of the inspiration for the story, where did this come from? Because this is, I mean, this would be classified as literary historical fiction. And I've read some of your more contemporary novels. So so can you give us an understanding of, of where the inspiration for this came from? I've always been uh, interested in cars. I come from a family. We were all interested in cars. My father used to drag race back in the 50s and the 60s. And I got to know a little bit about the, the origins of stock car racing, especially in that particular area during the Depression, Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. And I was always fascinated by the fact that some of these moonshine runners who grew up trying to outrun the cops or revenueers, as they were known, in the backwoods would drive these cars close to 100 miles an hour on, on roads that were basically a goat path. And they... From that, they morphed into the fledgling stock car industry. But back then, the stock car races were quite often held in a farmer's field somewhere on a Saturday night. And young kids would come down with their dad's pickup or their dad's sedan. And unbeknownst to their fathers, they would enter a stock car race and then bring the cars home with a with a blown motor or maybe dents all over the place. Or sometimes they would roll them over. So I was always interested in the juxtaposition of between the, the outlaws, the moonshine runners, and uh, what became the legitimate stock car racing tour, which became NASCAR eventually, but it was not NASCAR at this time. So it's been something that's kind of been in the back of my head for a lot of years. And then I, I finally did some more research on it and I sat down and I wrote a novel. Amazing. Yeah. And that is all fascinating to hear that evolution. Okay. So before we get into the nitty gritty of what I'd like to speak to you about the novel, something that we like to discuss on the show is that there are many options available to authors in terms of publishing. So many authors sort of chase the big four, the big five in terms of wanting to be traditionally published. But there are a ton of indie presses that are putting out amazing, amazing work. And in fact, in Canada, when it generally comes to awards season, we're seeing so many of the indie publishers' books are being the ones that are winning these candlelit prizes because they push boundaries, they're more likely to take risks, et cetera, et cetera. And so you publish with Bay Press. Could you tell us a bit about them, Brad, and your experience of publishing with them? Yeah, at Bay Press is from uh, Winnipeg, and that's a perfect description of them, what you just said there. They're publishing stuff that maybe the mainstream guys aren't going to publish. They are quite small, but they have good distribution in Canada and the States. It was kind of serendipitous how I got involved with them several years ago. At the time, I was publishing with uh, Skyhorse in New York City, who published The Return of Kid Cooper, which won the award that you mentioned earlier. But At Bay got in touch with me and asked me to blurb a book by a woman named Janet Troll, who comes from my hometown, kind of my hometown, 
And it turned out the book was terrific. It's, it's called Hot Town and Other Stories. And uh, she's a terrific short story writer. So anyway, I, I blurred the book and then I went to the launch and they said at that time, if you got anything you ever want to show us, get in touch. So a couple of years later, I sent them the Goliath Run. It was a, a political novel based in the States with a, a Trump-like character at the, at the center. And nobody really wanted to touch it for some reason down there. And so that, that Bay read it and they said, yeah, we love this book. We'll, uh, we'll publish it. And so that's a good example of what you were talking about, how they will take on stuff that other people, for some reason, whatever reasons, don't want to. So uh, once again, I, I'm a big believer in serendipity in life. And that, that was a, a perfect example of that, how I got hooked up with them. Yeah. And that is the thing for our listeners, because the big publishing houses want to be publishing things that they know are going to be commercial successes. And publishers are always saying, oh, we want something really different. We want something fresh. We want something new. But you give them something super fresh and new or really challenging. And they're like, oh, no, that's that's kind of too different. So we want something that's different, but that's kind of the same. And that can be really, really frustrating for anyone who's taking risks in terms of their subject matter, in terms of the structure of their novel, the language that they're playing around with, etc. So, so these are things to consider. And you don't need an agent to approach so many of these indie presses. Is that right, Brad? Well, because of the circumstances that I just described, I didn't. But no, I agree with you. You probably don't. I, I think they're quite open to submissions, you know. Yeah, and and that makes it easier in terms of all the gatekeeping because it can be so frustrating in publishing to have to go through all of these gatekeepers to be able to get your, your novel published. And sometimes if you're able to bypass a gatekeeper, it does make things flow a bit more smoothly. Okay, so now in terms of the craft of writing, there's a few things that I'd like to tackle here and pick your brain about, Brad. So on our podcast, we have two literary agents who give advice to listeners in terms of their query letters and the opening pages, telling them what should be included, what shouldn't, if they should begin with a prologue, if they shouldn't. And so we review a lot of opening pages on the podcast. And something that one of our agents has said, Cece Lira, has said that an opening chapter needs to surprise the reader in some way. It needs to do something surprising, grab their attention. And you did that straight out the bat with Copperhead Road in terms of that opening chapter. Can you give our listeners an overview of it? Because it's not really a spoiler. If they pick it up, that's the first thing that they're going to read. Well, first of all, I wanted to establish Bobby Barlow's past a little bit without revealing too much, as, as, as you said. So I made it clear that he was a guy who was kind of living outside the law. We mentioned early on that he's traveling with a woman who he's not entirely sure about, to tell you the truth. She's very ambitious and kind of ruthless and a little bit evil. And she wants to become a bank robber so she can become a movie star. I guess she would be called an influencer today, perhaps. <laughs> um, so I established, early, I established early on that, that they have stolen a car and that she loves guns and that she's got these grandiose plans to rob a bank. But I also work it out so that they're kind of like a Bonnie and Clyde couple, except Clyde is very reticent and hesitant about this whole plan. And the shift that you're talking about is by the end of the chapter, Bobby Barlow decides, okay, he wants no part of this woman. And he turns tail and heads back to Wilkesboro, where the story is actually really going to begin. So it's kind of a snapshot of these two people and mostly Bobby, what he's about. But it also feeds into a little bit about he's a man who, if he's living outside the law, he is honest. Yeah. And, you know, as the chapter goes, so you see him with this woman, Luann. 
and she has a plan that she's going to hold a gun to the bank manager's wife's head at their home and Bobby has to go to the bank and tell the bank manager to call his wife and when he established that the wife has been held up at gunpoint, the bank manager will hand all this money across. And so you're fully expecting in the first chapter for this to be this kind of Bonnie and Clyde story. You expect the sort of bank robbery to go off and for them to hottail it out of there. And of course, Bobby walks into the bank manager's office and the bank manager's like, what can I do for you? And Bobby just says nothing. Actually, there's nothing you can do for me. And he leaves, leaving Luann holding this woman at gunpoint waiting for this phone call. That's never going to happen. So something really surprising straight out the bat because the reader thinks, oh, I know what this is. It's a Bonnie and Clyde story. And therefore, I know exactly how this chapter is going to unfold. But then, boom, you kind of turn that around and you immediately surprise the reader. And that's not just something you do in chapter one. So we say on the podcast, you know, you need to surprise the reader in chapter one. But then we have chapter four. We have the family together. And it starts off with Tilda doesn't show up to the house the next morning. So it falls to Ava to make breakfast. Can you take us through that chapter as well in terms of the surprising ending of that chapter, which again, we aren't expecting? Okay, they started the, at the flag house and they have been quite an affluent family. They started making molasses in North Carolina around the time of the Civil War. And so they have a, a full-time housekeeper who's black, which is typical of, of that time in that area. She does not show up for breakfast for the first time in something like 30 years. She did not show up to cook. And so they know that there's something wrong there. I'll get into that a little bit more in a bit. But they sit at the table, and Ava's, Ava, the daughter, has recently returned from Chicago, where she was working for a publisher, believe it or not. And she's kind of trying to get a hold of what's going on in Wilkesboro County and with the family. And she wants to know, are they making molasses? Are they selling molasses? And she finds out that basically they're in dire straits, just like the rest of the, the country, because this is right in the middle of the Depression. Nobody's buying anything because nobody has any money. So what happens later on in the chapter, they find out that the housekeeper's mother has died. And Ava decides she's going to go to the funeral. Now, she has one brother who's kind of a, he's kind of narrow-minded and he's not the sharpest knife in the, in the drawer. And he basically tells her, no, you're not going to a black person's funeral. And she tells him in no uncertain terms where to get off. And so she heads out to go to the funeral by herself. And then suddenly she is joined by her father, uh, who is a preacher, by the way. I, I guess I didn't mention that her father is a preacher. But he's a preacher that really is not adverse to um, stretching the rules a little bit himself. So at the end of the chapter, the two of them are walking down to this funeral together. And it's, it's during that time when they encounter somebody I'm not quite sure where the chapter ends, to tell you the truth, because I don't have the book in front of me. Um, it's, it's not too long after that that they encounter another black man who's been borrowing the truck from the Flag Molasses Company, ostensibly to visit his daughter. But really, they find out later that he's running moonshine. And that, I don't think this is a spoiler, that gives Ava the idea, well, if he can make money running moonshine, and we're not making any money making molasses, maybe we need to change our business. Wonderful. Okay, two things here. So again, the ending, the chapter's ending is surprising to us because the brother's giving her such a hard time about going to this funeral that you expect the whole family to be against it. And where the chapter ends is she's walking along. It says there are a few white households along the way inhabited mostly by families that have worked for the flag family over the years. Now a handful of people come out on their front steps watching Ava as she walks. Apparently Ezra isn't the only one concerned with her upsetting the natural rhythm of things. 
Ava ignores their looks and walks on, her gaze fixed on the church house down the road. She feels his presence beside her before she sees him. He's dressed in his best frock coat, wearing a wide-brimmed hat. You look beautiful today, daughter. She slides her hand through her father's arm. So do you, old man. Right, so that's where the chapter ends. And something that, besides that it's surprising there, what I want to discuss is causality. Because a plot is not... A happens, B happens, C happens all randomly. A plot is A happens, which leads to B happening, which leads to C happening, and the character behaves in certain ways because of all of these things, right? So can you explain to us, Brad, in terms of the causality of your novel, why was this funeral scene important? Why was it important that you went to the funeral so that future things could happen? Uh, well, part of it is because of what happens afterwards with, with Elf, the guy that they find out is moonshining. But it's also to establish that in, in many ways, Ava is her father's favorite and that they're kind of in tune with each other more so than the other kids, his other offspring. Her mother has passed away, but it's, it's, it's something that continues on through the book is that Jedediah, the father, the preacher, in spite of the fact that what Ava is doing is illegal and some of the people, like Ezra, the brother, says it's immoral. He has always got Ava's back. And that scene that you're talking about is kind of the first inkling of that, that she is kind of his favorite, and that they, they think along the same lines. And it's sort of like, I always talk about writing a novel, like building a house, which I used to build houses for a living. And, you know, it's kind of like bricklaying. This would be the first row of bricks that you would lay. You need a good foundation, a good footing to start laying bricks. And so gradually... You lay a few bricks every day until the house is done. And with writing a novel, I feel it's the same way. You can, you sit down every morning and you write. I usually try to write five pages a day on a first draft. And it's very similar to building a house. You do a little bit, you do a little bit. And looking at it as a whole, to sit down and write 300 pages, it can be kind of daunting. But when you look at it like constructing a house, it's not really that daunting, you know, once you, once you kind of get into gear and, and get into the, the rhythm of things. Yeah. And something you've said there is, is so important because we say on the podcast that a scene needs to do various things, right? It can't just do one or two things. So one of the things it needs to do is reveal something about character that you didn't know about the character before. And it needs to move the plot forward. So this kind of scene establishes Ava as a free thinker, as someone who's very independent, who's not going to allow her brother to tell her what to do. It also establishes her as, I mean, because she says that the reason that she will absolutely not miss this funeral is because Tilda looked after her mother when her mother was so desperately ill. And Tilda was the one who lay in a cot next to the bed taking care of her mother. And so Ava is going to be there for Tilda when Tilda needs her. So it also establishes her as a good person with moral integrity, which you kind of think of as a contradiction for somebody who's running moonshine, but it actually isn't. But at the same time, it's moving the plot forward because if we took the scene out and she suddenly just met this other person and figured out that they were running moonshine, it wouldn't make sense. So scenes need to be like dominoes tipping over. One thing leads to the next thing, which leads to the next thing. And if you take any one scene out, a whole bunch of other things don't make sense because you're like, how did we get from point A to C without going through B? So can you talk us through that a bit, Brad? Yeah, I'm always a real stickler for that. When I'm reading something, I just I always say, well, you know, how did this happen all of a sudden? I, I didn't, I don't see any connection 
to what just happened to what happened prior to this. And it's, it's almost like, I don't know if you ever watched an old movie, sometimes they cut certain scenes out of the movie for sometimes they just do it for the running time of the film. And, and if you've seen the original, the original film, then you always say, well, but what happened to this scene where such and such happened, which led us to understand that scene? And so I'm a stickler for that in the book. And again, I wanted to establish Ava is sort of a woman before her time, because you're talking about the 1930s in Appalachia, which is a very racist time. It's a very kind of backward times in many respects. And that was one of the reasons that I, I initially, at the start of the book, she was in Chicago, because it kind of changed, expanded her way of thinking that she was living in Chicago. And she had a boyfriend, you remember, I mentioned it briefly at the start of the, in chapter two, I think it is. And he was a musician. He was black. And that sort of, that was very different too for that time in the 1930s. So I wanted to establish that she was a free thinker, somebody before her time, but I also wanted to lay the building blocks for what she was going to do next because there's a gradual realization to her what is going on down there. And she's somebody instead of what's, what's the saying, better to light a candle than curse the darkness. Well, she's going to light a candle and that candle turns out to be moonshine whiskey. And I agree with you 100% there in terms of when suddenly something happens and you're like, how the hell did we get there? This is implausible. I don't know how we made the leap. But what's equally frustrating is when you spend a lot of time in a scene or a chapter in which it feels like navel gazing. It's beautiful writing, etc. But we spend a lot of time there and at no point do we establish why we needed that scene? And so part of being a writer is to be really cutthroat when it comes to your own work and saying, yes, okay, these sentences are beautiful. I really got to do my jazz hands writing here and be really creative, etc. But did this actually move the story forward? Was it integral? Yes. And if it doesn't, like getting back to what you just said about being tough on yourself, what does Faulkner say? You have to learn to kill your precious darlings. I believe that's the phrase when it comes to editing your own work. So yeah, like, like you said, if you write something that you're really proud of and maybe you're showboating a little bit, but you realize, well, this isn't really working in terms of what I'm trying to do here. You have to have the courage enough or brains enough to say, okay, I'm going to get rid of this. You read a lot of stuff where you, where you can see, well, that didn't really happen. Though. Yeah, well, get rid of it or say, okay, I'm, I'm desperate to keep this. So what am I going to put in here that is so integral to the plot? That means that if the scene is taken out, the rest doesn't make sense. So there's either being ruthless, taking it out or doctoring it and saying, okay, I need to elevate it. The scene maybe reveals something about character, but it's certainly not moving the plot forward. And therefore I need to put something else in here that means it carries its weight and therefore it can stay. One of my earlier novels, my agent in New York, she read an early draft and she said, this certain character, this isn't quite working for me. And I said, well, maybe I should lose that character. She says, no, I think you should do more with that character. So that was, that was a good piece of advice. And that's what I ended up doing. Actually. Yeah. And, and that's excellent advice. You know, I know with my second novel, if you want to make God laugh, there was a subplot that I really wanted in there. And my editor said, no, you know, I think you should take it out. It's just not doing enough heavy lifting. And so I had a choice there, either take it out or really put in a lot more work to make that subplot earn its keep in terms of the story. And that's the way I chose to go. So I think we always have that choice, you know, take it out or just elevate it. Yeah. By the way, I've always loved the title of that book, if you want to make God laugh. And I, <laughs> I was thinking about it last week during the elections in the States because uh, 
I think somebody wanted to make God laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, it's interesting times. What's at the curse? May you live in interesting times. Brad, thank yes, you so, exactly. so much for joining us. For our listeners, we're going to put Copperhead Road on our bookshop.org affiliate page. We love supporting our indie presses. So please get that book. Have a look at how Brad has surprised the reader, turned expectations on their head. By supporting us there, you support the podcast and indie publisher, and you support Brad. Brad, we look forward to having you back again. Yes, I look forward to it too. Thank you very much, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. 
Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.